0: as we prepare our our sermons if i if i'm like any of the other uh pastors we we read and read and read and, and then we write our outline based on the scripture that we have and, and then from there for myself i write out every word just about that i'm going to speak speak on so i have the full narrative of what i'm going to speak on well as i uh, continued in that process, uh, my outline changed significantly, and I threw out almost all my outline, actually. The first section is, uh, you'll be able to probably gather, but the rest of it uh, is, is not necessarily there. We hit some important information in First Samuel, uh, these chapters, actually I'm going chapters 9 through 15. That, that I couldn't skip over them. They became vital uh, through my study and, and through my own prayer. So, even though you're only going to have one section to fill out, uh, we'll, we'll still be here for a couple, three hours. There's a man named Clarence Jordan, and, and, and he was unusual because he had two PhDs, and basically he could choose to do anything he wanted in his life. He had had an opportunity to do just about anything he wanted, and what he decided to do was serve the poor. It was in the 1940s, and and he established a farm in Americus, Georgia, called the Koinonia Farm. Well, this was a community that he was designing for poor white people and poor black people. If you can imagine in the deep south, in the 1940s, that didn't go over too well. Many people... Uh, tried to cause havoc on this farm. Many people tried to derail it uh, from slicing uh, the tires uh, of workers' vehicles uh, to uh, doing other things to them, boycotting things, and, and doing things over and over throughout the years. For 14 years they did this. Many of those people were church people who were trying to overthrow this. In 1954, the the Ku Klux Klan decided they've had enough of this ridiculousness. So they decided to get rid of Clarence and his farm, the Koinonia farm, for good. So they went one night with a large group of people with torches and with guns. And they burned up every building except for the house at the farm. The house, they shot it up. Well, Clarence was there, along with many other people. Most of the people ran except for one black family and Clarence's family. And Clarence could hear the people talking. And he recognized the people. He recognized many of his fellow church members who were in the Ku Klux Klan there. And he recognized a news reporter. Well, the next day, the news reporter came out, and he could see all the rubble and, and the burning still, uh, the smoke still coming up. And and, and the reporter said to Clarence, I heard the awful news. And I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. But when he found Clarence, he was in the field hoeing and planting. So he just continued. And the reporter kept prodding and poking, trying to get a rise out of Clarence. So finally the reporter said, Well, Dr. Jordan... You've got two of them PhDs, and you've but 14 years into this farm, and there's nothing left of it. Just how successful do you think you've been? Clarence stopped just for a moment. He turned towards the reporter with his penetrating blue eyes, and he said quietly but firmly, About as successful as the cross, sir. I don't think you understand us. What we are about is not success. But faithfulness. We're staying good day. Well, beginning that day, Clarence and his companions, they rebuilt Koinonia Farm. In fact, Koinonia Farm is still there today. And and they have birthed many organizations, many organizations out of that farm, including Habitat for Humanity International. How are we measuring success? How do we measure success? What are you saying to your kids about success? Is success defined by you by, oh, good job, you got an A on that paper, son. Great work, you're successful. How about winning that big game? Oh, man, you did a great job playing that instrument for that large group of people. Man, well done, you have succeeded. How are we measuring success? How about if you get a job that pays a lot of money, are you successful? I think in order for us to understand truly what success is, we must explore the contrast between the world's definition and the word's definition, God's word's definition. Well, the world, that was defined by the video they, they gave all kinds of different definitions of what success was to them. Uh, uh, people were all over the place, from getting as many likes on social media as possible to going to Disneyland. Success is measured uh, it, by people that they, I got to retirement. I'm successful. I, I, I've, I've gotten married. I found a bride. You know what? I have more toys than that neighbor over there. I'm successful. You see, our world's definition of success is all over the place because it's individualized. It's subjective to our current perspective. I think if we truly want to know what success is, we have to go to Scripture. We have to understand what Scripture is talking about, what success is. And you see, as we dig into Scripture, we understand that God has a completely different view of success. Throughout the Bible, it's interesting to think about that, that we see people who love the Lord and who are extremely wealthy. And we see people who love the Lord and are extremely poor. Uh, we see that people have families that love the Lord, and we see people that have no family, and they love the Lord. People have all different kinds of occupations. They live in all kinds of different places, and they serve their communities in many different ways. People, some people that love the Lord and are successful are kings, and some are beggars. And as a preaching team, we, we, we sat down and we tried to come up with what we thought biblical success was. It, it, it's just a shot that we, we took at it to see what, if we could define it. And we said, and this is the lower part of, of number one, biblical success is is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to do, or wants me to be, and do. Biblical success is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and do. It's ongoing. It's interesting to think about. And that's what we're going to try to learn uh, while, while we go through this message. You see, the secret of success is always keeping your compass pointing toward the north, and and, and the north is is focused in on the Lord, and even if we're off by a a few degrees, uh, we'll start straying, and we need to recalibrate, and we need to refocus ourselves uh, back on the Lord, and and, and that's the ongoing pursuit. You guys remember uh, 1979, Air New Zealand, Air New Zealand had 257 passengers on its airplane. And as they were getting ready to take off from New Zealand, they were heading to Antarctica, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to sightsee. It was a sightseeing flight. They literally flew there, and then they flew back. And so it's just a round trip, and two highly qualified pilots were on that plane, leading that plane. They had never flown this particular trip before, uh, but they had flown uh, thousands of hours. And the flight coordinates changed the day before by two degrees. Someone had changed the coordinates by two degrees. And so as the pilots were flying, they found themselves 28 miles to the east of where they thought they were at. Well, the pilots had no way of knowing that they were heading right towards a volcano. You see, Mount Erebus is a large volcano that stands up 12,000 feet off of the Antarctic ice, but it's covered with ice itself. And so from the pilot's view, it was flat ground because it blended in perfectly with the clouds and on the ground. And they were, they were flying just in the right direction because they had the coordinates, but they were off by two degrees. And all of a sudden, their alarms went off, I think it was at 12.49 p.m. Their alarms go off like crazy, and they're saying that they're in a dangerous area, about to touch ground, and they had no idea. Less than 30 seconds later, the plane crashed right into the side of the volcano. All 257 people were killed instantly. It's a terrible tragedy. It's brought on by a minor error, a matter of only a few degrees. And our focus on the Lord, it's dangerous when we move off just a few degrees. Let's see what 1 Samuel has for us today. Remember in chapter 8, Samuel had become uh, the high priest. And the people demanded a king for Israel. They demanded it. We want it so much, Samuel. We've got got people coming up against us, and we need a king to help fight for us. And Samuel warned against that, but the people were insistent. So the Lord allowed Samuel to anoint a king. In chapter 9, we're introduced to a handsome A handsome young man. He was very tall, came from a very wealthy family, and his name was Saul. His dad sends him out, him and a servant, to go find the donkeys that they lost. Go find donkeys. So they go out looking for these donkeys and they can't find them. And and, and then they they come up with the idea hey, let's go uh, talk to the seer. That's what they called prophet. Let's go talk to the prophet. And find out if he can help us find the donkeys. Well, the prophet was Samuel. And so, a day before this, Samuel was visited. And the Lord spoke to Samuel. And he said in verse 16, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to the prince over over the people of Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So, so Saul finally comes up to Samuel, and Samuel starts just like praising Saul and saying, "Wow, you're you're a great guy. Uh, you're you're from the tribe of Benjamin, right?" And, and he starts lifting him up, and 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 Saul goes, "Oh, I, I'm nobody. Like you said, I'm from I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. We're the we're the." weakest tribe. I, I, I'm a nobody. And, and it's almost, almost as if uh, Samuel's being humble in this conversation, which, or Saul is, which is not what we're used to. So Samuel, he feeds the two. He lets them stay the night. And then the next morning, they wake up, and as they're getting ready to, to head out to go uh, back to Kish, which is uh, Saul's father's name, Samuel pulls Saul aside by himself. And he says, come here. And all of a sudden, Samuel whips out some oil. And he's going to anoint Saul as the king of Israel. I mean, imagine this. He just met him the day before. It says in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now, think about Saul in this case. This old guy throws oil over his head and anoints him, and he's thinking, what is this prophet doing? And and Samuel knew that Saul was going to not understand this whole process, so he said, there's going to be signs for you along the way You'll find your donkeys, yeah, there'll be all these other signs, and, and that will know. then you'll know that I'm telling the truth. There, there's, a, there's a little verse in there that says, I think it's verse 9, it says, when he turned his back, they're talking about Saul, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Aren't you thankful that God gave you another heart? That God chose you and gave you another heart? You see, Saul was able to speak prophetic words when he got back uh, to uh, Gibeah and amazed the people because that's not what who Saul was. And, and I thought about that, and I thought, isn't that cool? And, and, and maybe some of you guys uh, lived uh, some more uh, pure childhoods than than myself, then your two pastors. <laughs> because when people sometimes see me from high school or, or, or when they, when I'm talking to somebody and, and, and I'm talking to their parents or, or whatever, I, I think they're a little taken aback because I care about people, because they, they know I love the Lord, and, they, uh, and I love that. Just like Saul here, all of a sudden he's speaking prophetic words like... What is this guy doing? But isn't that a great opportunity to give praise to God? Oh, it's nothing I've done. God has just changed my life. What an opportunity to, to share God's word and to share his message and to give him all the glory. Before uh, or, or people start asking Saul what's going on, his uncle talks to him and says, what, what, what in the world's going on? Well, why are you... What, what were you doing? And Saul just says, hey, we, we found the donkeys. Samuel helped us find the donkeys. Samuel gathers everybody together. And this is important stuff for us to understand all of Scripture uh, together. And Samuel gathers all the people together, all the tribes. And, and he says, uh, I, I want to make one more plea to you. You guys are asking for a king, but I want to I explain things one more time. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all the calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands. Well, this is where he's going to announce Samuel as the king or where Samuel's going to announce Saul as the king. And and so he starts casting lots. I don't know what that was. Scripture isn't extremely clear about it. But somehow they start weeding out all the tribes. If they have people come up there and and Samuel's like, no, no, I I don't know exactly what that was. But eventually they get down to the tribe of Benjamin. And and, and they know that it's, he knows it's going to be Saul. God already... Spoke to him about that. And Saul, knowing this fact as well, because remember Saul, he was anointed before this already by Samuel to be the king, and nobody knew that. Saul is hiding in the luggage. Saul's hiding in the luggage, uh, almost, almost like he's uh, being scared you see, all the people were traveling, and so they had all kinds of different luggage because they were traveling to get there. And Saul finally shows himself. And, Saul's, and Samuel's like, look at this. He stands head and shoulders above everybody. Samuel says, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Isn't it interesting to note here that the people are only going on appearance? They're they're only looking at Saul in his appearance. He's handsome, he's tall, he's strong. They didn't care about his spiritual life. Obviously, they didn't care about the spiritual life. And, And so they're measuring their success as, hey, that's the person, that's who we want, that big tall person. We want a fighter. What about this luggage thing? Why in the world was he hiding in the luggage? I I think when we first look at that, we think, oh, he was humble. He didn't want to be lifting himself up. But I don't think that's what it was. I think that he was shrinking from the call of God. I think he, he had an understanding of how big this was. Because God appointed him and anointed him through his prophet Samuel. He wasn't wasn't like Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. No, he's acting like a coward. He's acting like a coward. Don't we do this? Don't we coward from the call that the Lord puts on us? If, If you are spending time in prayer... And you're looking to the Lord and asking him, please help me to understand what I'm supposed to do today. Give me the opportunities. Change me. Help me to affect your kingdom. Use me in any way that you want. God's going to give a call on your life. Now, are you cowarding? Are you saying, here am I, send me? You see, we all have a lot of baggage But God can use each of us for his own purpose. Continuing on. Samuel tells Saul all his responsibilities, and he sends everyone home. So everyone goes home. But early on in his kingship, a a battle is announced, and the Amorites want to fight. And through a series of events where where Saul uh, rips apart an animal and sends it to all the tribes, he gathers 330,000 men. What a leader. This is, this is great leadership. We're seeing some good leadership actually here. This is one of, the, one of the only times we see this with Saul in his entire life. He, 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 he gathers all these people because he's going to take them down. And the Amorites, they've captured the people at Yabesh Gilad, and Saul's victorious in, in this first battle. And he saves the people, and he and he and he wins. But it's interesting to note that, like in chapter thirty or thirty-one of First Samuel, uh, Samuel die or yeah, Saul dies. Saul and his kids, his three kids, they die, and, and the Philistines they hang their bodies on the wall that they have their ex- exterior wall, and, and they hang them up so everyone could see there, there's Saul and his three kids. And in the middle of the night, uh, the people, the inhabitants of Yabash Gilad, they risk their lives, and they go take the bodies off the wall, and they give them a proper burial. It's interesting to, to think that they, they never forgot that. Chapter 12 has Samuel telling his people that God isn't happy with them for asking for a king. You know, Samuel, he doesn't give up. He understands that this is not a good thing that you wanted a king, but why isn't it a good thing? 1 Samuel 12 says 12 through 15, and when you saw that Nahash the king of Amorites came against you, you said to me, "No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king." You see Jesus was or the God the Father was already the king of Israel, of the nation of Israel. He was the king, but they wanted a worldly king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reign over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. Chapter 13 has a couple of fast-forward moments in it. It, it, it talks about uh, his first year, and then it goes to the second year. Uh, and uh, it jumps over a length of time. This is where Saul, uh, they're, they're getting ready to fight the Philistines. The Philistines are, are building their army. And, and interesting to note here is that Saul, we're seeing some uh, poor leadership again. Saul had an opportunity uh, to really prepare his army. He had gathered 330,000 in that first battle, and and now he's got some time in between, and and he's not really preparing. You see, the Philistines, in a previous uh, situation, they had gotten rid of all of the uh, blacksmiths, we'll call them, all the people who were making the weapons and and, and sharpening the weapons. Philistines had... Wisely and strategically got rid of those uh, from the nation of Israel. And Saul did nothing about it. He didn't lift up people and and, and have people get trained in that trade. Instead, we'll see later on that many of the men weren't even equipped and they had to get their weapons sharpened uh, from the Philistines. Poor leadership. Poor leadership. We also learn in this chapter about Jonathan. And Jonathan, he's the son of of Saul. He's one of his sons, and he's an older, uh, uh, he's a young man at this point, and, and they go out to a battle. One of the, one, one of the first battles that, uh, that we know against the Philistines with Saul, and, and, and Saul's got a group of people, and Jonathan's got a group of people, and Jonathan wins his battle. And, and Saul, like a great father and a great king, He decides to toot his own horn, literally announcing that he has been victorious in this battle. Instead of giving praise to his son, and instead of allowing the people to praise his son, he toots his own horn. And so he takes glory from that. Sometimes we do that as well. We like to toot our own horn. And then we see that the Philistines get ticked. And so they surround Saul. And his people. And all his people get super scared. And they start running off because Saul is is told by Samuel, wait seven days. And I will be there. And I will conduct a sacrifice. And you will be victorious. And Saul's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the seven days comes. And Samuel hasn't come yet. And so what does Saul decide to do? Saul decides to create a sacrifice himself. And he sacrifices to the Lord in preparation. And right as the sacrifice is happening, you guessed it, Samuel walks up. Gets his hand caught in the cookie jar. We always catch the kids, don't we? And here's what Samuel said. This is super interesting. I mean, because this is, this is, this is the crux of of so much in scripture right here you have done foolishly he tells saul you have not kept the command of the lord your god with which he commanded you for then the lord would have established your kingdom over israel forever listen to this line but now your kingdom shall not continue the lord has sought a man after his own heart Remember that? That's what David is called, man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We we, we can go on and and talk about the other stuff, but this is so important that we stop right here. So important that we stop right here to talk about what just happened. I think it's important for us as a church. It's important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's important for us if we're trying to understand what the Bible is talking about? This is crucial. Why in the world do you think Samuel would be so upset about this? Why would God be so upset about this? This one action. I mean, I read it probably a dozen times. Why is he so upset? Samuel, he was the one who was late. He didn't get there in time. And Saul was waiting, right? Well, I think there's several issues, several issues that come, come into play here. First, Saul lacked overall patience and complete dependence of the Lord. He waited for the sacrifice, but he didn't wait long enough. Isn't that what we do? We wait for the Lord to do something. We're going to say something to that person over there. Let me pray to God about it. I don't feel like God has given me an answer, so I'm just going to do it. We, we wait on the Lord. Okay, please, God, help give me direction on what I'm supposed to do in my job. But we don't wait long enough. But what, what am I supposed to do in my life? Uh, how am I supposed to uh, go into this situation You know, we're a society, we want it now, right? We want it right now. Fast food, microwaves, uh, instant music availability. We want everything right now. We have trouble waiting. We have trouble waiting. We get tired of it. What does Scripture say, though? I think it's in Isaiah. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We can't get tired of waiting for the Lord. We cannot get tired of waiting for the Lord. In your quiet time, I I, I challenge you. I urge you to get on your knees and pray, God, give me the patience to wait on you. Whatever it is. And he will provide an answer to you. The Spirit will guide you if you humble yourself. Could be today. Or it could be in 10 years. Whatever you're asking. We want it now, but the reality is, that we're serving God. And his time frames are a little bit different. Also Saul relied on himself. Instead of working together. With Samuel and with God. One of the rules for the king. Was that he was to follow the Lord's commands. Also Saul wasn't allowed. To perform the sacrifices. Remember you had to be. A, a priest or a Levite. And Samuel was or Saul, was neither of those. He was neither of those. If you're a good biblical scholar, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, David did. David sacrificed. And David was neither a Levite or a priest. But remember that prophet Gad, he commanded David to perform the sacrifice. So that was allowed. So why in the world... Was this one act, this one disobedience, so important? Well, why did it cause him to lose his kingship? That, that's why I kept reading it over and over. Saul lost his kingship right here. Because he performed the sacrifice when he was supposed to wait. It's because God is beyond serious about sacrifice. He's beyond serious about sacrifice. And this is, this is the hugest point that I, I, I think I've ever preached. Because sacrifice, we don't understand it, I don't think, fully. Uh, we, we, I think we all, probably just about all of us, would agree that we understand that it, it, it was great that Jesus sacrificed his body because that cleansed me so that I could live with him for eternity. I think we, we understand that, or, or we proclaim that, and we, we say that. But I don't know if we understand the whole reason of sacrifice, the whole reason. We've got to start all the way at the beginning. There's these two people that were created. Who are the two people? Adam and Eve. And you know what? They were perfect for a period of time they were sinless for a period of time and, and and God made a covenant with them and when the covenant was made that created tension anytime God creates a covenant there's automatic tension with humanity created you see God he has an extremely high standard extremely high standard And he cannot lower that standard. Because if he lowers his standard of perfection, he actually eliminates his holiness. Isn't that interesting to think? That he is not allowed by himself to lower his own standards. Human perfection was absolutely lost when Adam and Eve sinned, it was lost. So God had to come up with, not that he didn't know about it, a solution. He had to come up with a solution to solve this issue of sin because there was a penalty of sin. What was the penalty of sin? Death. And so he came up with sacrifice. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they were ashamed, and they knew that they were naked. Sin had entered into humanity. What did God do? You guys remember what God did? He provided animal skins to cover their nakedness. Why? Well, Adam and Eve, they were in need of saving from their immediate penalty of sin, which we already declared is death. So God covers their sin by accepting the death of an innocent substitute. Super important to understand that. Remember, God had just recently created animals, and he pronounced that they were very good. Uh, They were without spot, and they were without blemish. And God had to do for Adam and Eve what they couldn't do for themselves. And they could not escape God's justice, because God couldn't lower his standards. He could not lower his standards. Adam and Eve, they deserved to die. They deserved to die. And a penalty had to be paid, both in the short term and for eternity. You see, this this method of sacrifice is talked about many times in the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament. It was fully developed in the book of Leviticus, uh, where they really talked about uh, the methodology and, and how to go about it. But we see another example of sacrifice in, in Genesis 22. Remember that? Abraham? Abraham is, is there and, and he's shown the stars and, and God said, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars. And Abraham's like, I don't even have a kid. And finally, he has a son. And his, his son and him... Uh, They go up uh, to the mountain because God told him, told Abraham, take your son Isaac and, and, and take him up there, create an altar with him to honor me, lay your son on it, and kill him. Sacrifice your son. Sacrifice your only son. Can you imagine that? Abraham had to think about, okay, no, this this doesn't work because I have all the descendants in the world. You told me all those stars are going to be my descendants, so this can't be true. But then I I think we see it in Hebrews. He thought, okay, I'm going to follow through because I believe that God will do anything. He'll do anything. Maybe he'll even raise him from the dead. So Abraham goes up there and, and, and and he builds the author and altar, and he, and he raises his knife, and did he kill him? No. God stopped him right at the last moment, and he provided a substitute sacrifice, a ram, who was right next to him. It's an amazing story, absolutely amazing story that we have heard many times in Sunday school uh, and, and in different places, and it teaches us, we, we, we don't want to miss what the nature of sacrifice is. It suggests that God could potentially accept a human sacrifice and it would be acceptable. This is the first time we see that. God doesn't allow a human sacrifice throughout Scripture until his own son, later on, Jesus Christ. But it's interesting to note that. And second, it shows us that God would accept a substitute, something uh, in place of, In this case, a ram in place of the son Isaac. It's not until we see the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament that the significance of Abraham's offering becomes absolutely clear. Like many of the Old Testament, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection takes these beliefs and rituals and displays them in a beautiful way. You see, all of these sacrifices... including the one that Samuel was going to do, going to perform for the Israelites and for Saul. They were designed to do a few things, to show gratitude to God, to demonstrate a contrite heart before God, and ultimately to atone for sin. This is important to understand, that the sacrifice is meant to give honor to God and to atone for sin. A proper understanding of sacrifice and atonement is extremely helpful for us who want to do good works. We just want to do good stuff, and, and we'll keep giving to the Lord, and we'll keep working hard, and, and, and we'll keep doing everything, but God wants just to, He wants us to give our hearts. He wants us to, to care about Him. The Israelites found atonement through sacrifices, we must learn that our hope is in a sacrifice. All of our hope is in a sacrifice. New Testament clearly explains that the sacrifice that we must trust everything in was the sacrifice of Jesus, where true atonement was created. You see, Saul shows, shows us in these chapters, including chapters 14 and 15, that he has a heart issue. Saul has a complete heart issue. Saul was anointed to be the first king of Israel. He had the looks, he had the money, he had the fame, and he had the job title. However, he lacked the ability to humble himself before the people. To humble himself before Samuel. And humble himself, most importantly, before God. You know what he did? Is He looked to himself... And the sacrifice was just another way. He just wanted to get it done so he could win. It wasn't about God. And the sacrifice of Jesus, is that just something that we gloss over? That was really, really good of him, really kind of him. No, the sacrifice of Jesus is absolutely crucial for you. And it's absolutely crucial for me, for us to understand that our sins have been atoned for. There's atonement in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think some of us, we look at our own efforts. We look at our own jobs and our own money, and it makes us absolutely special in the eyes of God. The only thing God wants from you and from me is that we humbly bow our knee to him. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. That's what God wants. That's success. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to allow God to actually direct your ways today and tomorrow and every day? Are you willing to become a leader in whatever situation God has you in by being a humble servant? Remember, biblical success is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and all that God wants me to do, serve Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we cannot thank you enough for your sacrifice, for what you have done for us by, by giving up your precious Son and allowing Him to shed His blood uh, in place of us, given us victory over death through his resurrection. And we are so thankful for that, God. Well, we're so thankful that we can serve uh, a great and mighty and holy and perfect God. Lord, would you use us? Would you affect us uh, in a way that we can be effective for your kingdom? Would you help us uh, to be wise uh, to know how to wait upon you and wise in ways of communicating your word through our our lives and through our words and through our ability to listen? God, we are thankful for the opportunities that we can uh, come before you and freely talk to you directly. We love you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.